And good morning again. So apparently when I was up here, I said that uh, uh, the Korean team that's coming here is one of four teams, actually one of 40. Sorry, my bad. All right, let's pray. Father, we ask that uh, right now as we look at your word that you would speak into us. God, we, we desire to hear your heart, to know you more when we leave this place. So we're inviting you right now. We're, we're, we're intentionally opening our hearts and our minds to you, inviting you to work in us by your word, by your spirit. Have your way. Amen. So I actually wrote uh, this week's and next week's sermon, most of them uh, three weeks ago because I knew with the Koreans coming that I was going to be really super busy right now. And so I did that. But it was just a few days ago that I realized that I probably should lay a little bit of a foundation to put this into a context of where we've been, some of the things that we've been talking about. So I want to start off with that idea. And I want you to think back to the Garden of Eden. We've heard a few times that in the Garden of Eden that, that heaven and earth were really together, if you will. And think of heaven less as a, a destination and more of a realm. Uh, the spiritual realm, the physical realm were together. God walked and talked with Adam and Eve. Everything was, was together right there. But then sin happened, right? And, and so there was like this, this veil, this, this curtain that came between those two realms. They were separated. So fast forward into uh, the time of the, the, the temple in the Old Testament. And what was the point of the temple? It was to, in some ways to bring those two things back together. To, to cause that. And it wouldn't happen fully until Jesus showed up, right? But at least in some way to bring them back together. Uh, heaven and earth. That was the, what was the job of the, the priests? It, they were to be the intermediaries between earth and heaven, right? So that was that, that idea. Fast forward again up until Jesus. So Jesus, how many times did we hear Jesus say, the kingdom of heaven is here now. The kingdom of heaven is among you, right? And that's what he was doing. He was bringing those two realms back together. I mean, you see it over and over in his life. How else is he walking on water? I mean, just, you know, there's so many things that, that he did that caused those thing, things coming back together. And then when he died and rose again, kind of, I, I heard somebody recently say it was a reset, just kind of reset everything so that, that now we're starting over and they are, they can be back together. And when he then ascended, he, if I can say it this way, he bequeathed that role to you and me, to his followers. So our job really is to be bringing those things together. Uh, why else are we called a kingdom of priests? We're the intermediaries. We're called the temple, right? We're bringing those things back together. All right, so that's all kind of foundation. And now you might be sitting there thinking, well, that sounds really good. To that's all stuff that we've heard already, all right? We, we've heard these things before. But you might be thinking, that sounds really good, Tom, but I don't see a lot of that in my life. Well, that's really what I want to talk to you about, how we can increasingly walk in that role, Okay. So that was foundation. Now I'm going to give you the introduction. Sorry. Um, if you could pick one person through all history who could do things that were good and amazing and could do them without the help of anybody else, who would you pick? Good answer. Good answer. That's a great the Sunday school answer. It's always Jesus, right? Yeah. Uh, so so he, he's the one that the Bible says all things were made through him and without him not anything was made that was made, right? Theologians say that Jesus was 100% God 
and 100% man. And so then he could have done whatever he wanted to, right? And, and if he's God, whatever he does is going to be good. He's, he's not going to like perpetrate evil on us, right? He's, he's God. And so Jesus didn't need anybody to tell him what to do or how to do it. You with me? But here's the, the crazy side of this. Jesus always acted out of his relationship, really big word that we're going to go back to a hundred times in the sermon, relationship with his father. He always went back to that. I'm going to show you just a, a bunch of passages just from one of the gospel accounts. I was actually pretty surprised how, how prevalent this idea was when I started looking at it. Um, you should have all these in your notes. John 5:19. the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 7.16, the teaching is, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. John 7.28, I have not come of my own accord. John 8.28, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And John 14.10, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. And there are others just in the book of John. That's not including the other Gospels. You see this again and again. He, if he truly is the God-man that we say he is, then he didn't need to have, think about this, he didn't need to have his father's input. But he always sought it. He always wanted it. Now you've heard me say many times in the past that the primary thing that God designed us for, wanted for us as his people is relationship. Relationship with him, relationship with one another. Those are the primary things right from the beginning. But then sin came along, caused us to be separated from God, separated from one another, right? So before Jesus ever came, before he ever showed up visibly, God began to offer ways that we could at least have somewhat of a relationship, his people could have somewhat of a relationship with him, um, things like sacrifices that were implemented so that there could be at least a dimension of the forgiveness of sins, uh, the various festivals that were designed to connect the people to God and to one another, even the Sabbath, right? All of these, these different things. But then along comes this passage in Isaiah chapter 1 that I find both crazy and challenging. Isaiah 1, beginning in verse 10, it says this, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Understand God is talking to Israel here. He's not talking to Sodom and Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling in my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. You know, I have read that passage many times. I've even taught from that passage literally hundreds of times, but I still find it somewhat unnerving. Almost everything that God talks about in that section of scripture, things that he tells his people he's tired of them doing, are things that he told them to do. The sacrifices, the burnt offerings, the, the solemn assemblies, the feasts, the Sabbath, for goodness sakes, that's one of the Ten Commandments. These are all things that God had told them to do. These were not things the Israelites had come up with on their own. These were God's ideas. And here he's saying, I don't want them anymore. Stop. 
And this isn't just a one-time idea in the Bible. You've got a couple of other scriptures there in your, in your notes. I'm not going to read through those just for the sake of time. But there are other passages that are like that. This, this feels to me like a consistent theme throughout the Old Testament that God chastises his people for doing the very things that he told them to do. Now, as I read this, I have to wonder why. Why is he telling them to stop doing the things that he told them to do? I mean, he said, do it. Now he's saying, stop, do it. Is God just capricious? Is he whimsical? Can't make up his mind? Or do you think might it be something else? I, uh, I have twice now been to the infamous concentration camp, Auschwitz. I really didn't want to go back a second time, but I was ministering in Poland with a totally different group of people and I felt like perhaps they should experience it also, so I went, and uh, I don't even want to go into the horrors of that place, but it is a ghastly place where more than a million people died at the hands of the Nazis. But I'm telling you this for a reason. Sorry, caught up in the emotion of that place. Both times that I was there, somehow I ended up with the same tour guide. And... She had this monotone, detached presentation where she went through everything that happened there, but with zero emotion. You could ask her a question and she would give you kind of a slow, measured response and then right back into her memorized presentation. And honestly, I can understand why she would do that. Because I can't even imagine having a job like that, of explaining that place day after day after day after day. But if you're going to get caught up in the emotion of it, that's going to make it way, way harder. So you just remove yourself from it. Makes sense to me. But the reason I'm telling you this is because as she was going through her presentation, I thought of Isaiah chapter 1. Because I have to think that the Israelites were doing all of the things that God told them to do, but they were doing it in a cold, detached emotionless way. No real meaning, no real feeling in what they were doing. So let me explain to you why I'm sharing all this with you. A while back, David Kreuter was preaching and he said something that really struck me. It wasn't something new, I knew it, but it was like I had been looking at it through this window that was all dirty and all of a sudden somebody washed all the dirt and grime away and I could see it a lot more clearly. Remember when David was talking about fasting and he said that Fasting is not to twist God's arm. It's not to get God to do something that he doesn't really want to do. David showed us from Scripture, and I think pretty accurately, that fasting is all about developing our relationship with the Lord. That the, the discipline of going without food, or at least some food for a time, can help us develop a, a deeper, stronger, richer relationship with God. It's not to get something from him. It's about developing our relationship with him. But David also said that if we fast in an effort to, I don't know, get God to like us more or to earn some brownie points, that we're better off not fasting because that's not what it's all about. And as he shared that, I immediately thought of Isaiah chapter 1. Think about it. What was the point behind God giving the Israelites all of these things to, to do, the, the, the uh, the sacrifices, the burnt offerings, the, the incense, the feasts, the assemblies, even for the Sabbath. Every one of them 
was to drive them toward God. God didn't really want those things, those actions, so much as he wanted relationship. Those things were meant to be signs that pointed toward him. Let me explain it this way. If you drive down Goldman Spur Road to where it tees at Old Lee May Ferry, oftentimes there are signs there. Wedding reception this way, yard sale that way. There's one that's always there, Sandy Creek Covered Bridge, right? But those signs aren't the real thing. See, nobody would ever look at that sign down there and think that is Sandy Creek Covered Bridge. It just points the way to it. And that's what those activities that God gave the Israelites were supposed to be all about. They were signs that pointed toward God. But see, I would suggest that the Israelites got to the place where they saw those things as the destination. There, I did that thing. I can check that off my list for this week or this year or whatever it might be. They thought that accomplishing that thing was the goal. There, I did my, my sacrifice. I'm done with that for a year. Did my Sabbath ritual. Don't have to worry about that for another week. But see, the real point from God's perspective was relationship with him and honestly with one another. Think back again to the, the Garden of Eden. God didn't give Adam and Eve any rituals. He gave them himself. He walked with them. He talked with them. God wanted a relationship. And, and think about this. Before the fall, they were, they were innocent. They trusted God. They trusted each other. But when the sin happened, what happened? They became afraid. They became ashamed. It broke the relationship. And he removed them from the garden. And I've said this before, that them being removed from the garden was really for their own good. Because they could not, in a sinful state, remain in the holy presence of God and live. It's not going to happen. Which is why Jesus came. Now we can be in the presence of God, you with me, because of what Jesus did. But before I go too far, there's another aspect here that I think it's really, really important for us to understand. Adam and Eve's sin broke the relationship with God, but it also broke the relationship with one another. They could never again interact with each other in a completely sinless state. Use your God-given imagination for a minute. When, when they left the garden, everything would have been so much harder. I mean, the, God cursed the ground. He said it's going to bring forth thorns and thistles. The conditions that they were going to have to deal with outside of the garden was going to be so much different, so much more difficult than what they had experienced before. And let's be honest, I don't think they even could have looked at each other in the same way that they did previously. The innocence was gone. In that sinful state, there is an, uh, can I say, an automatic distrust that happens there. It would be really easy for them at that point to blame the other. You're, you're the reason this is all so difficult now. If you're married or you've ever been married, you know that what I'm saying right there is not only within the realm of possibility, but within the realm of probability. And don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about, because you do. And that, so, so, so it broke the relationship with God, broke the relationship with one another, and that continued to get worse. Think of Cain and Abel. There was this seemingly ever-widening chasm in person-to-person -person relationships, person-to-person, brother-to-brother, those things. It was broken. 
One human, or one writer said it like this, human sinfulness is the root of every relational rift. It's true. Whether that's, that's the, 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 the vertical relationship or the horizontal relationship doesn't make any difference. It's true. So sin wreaked havoc on everything. Relationship between God and man was severed. Relationship between man to man was severed. The, the, the two primary things that I said at the beginning that, that God wants for us, destroyed because of sin. But then, later, along come the Israelites, and God gives him, his people ways that they could approach him and also to be reconciled with one another. It was through those various rituals that he showed them, right? The, the feasts and the festivals, the incense, and the offerings, all of those things were designed to allow the people to, in some measure, come into the presence of God and also to find forgiveness and cleansing and be reconciled to God and to one another. All those rituals really were a, can I say, a foreshadowing of Jesus coming, his death and resurrection that was going to ultimately bring us back, to reconcile us back to one another, back to God. But those, those rituals, those, those various actions were not supposed to be an end in themselves. They were designed to allow the people to be in right relationship with God and each other. That was the point. And it's the same way, here's why I'm telling you this, it's the same way for us today with the various disciplines, rituals that we have. Think about it. Go back to fasting that we already talked about. In our carnal, self-centered minds, if we fast, it's usually because we think it's going to demonstrate to God how, how serious we are about something and therefore he's going to give us that thing that we're asking for. But all the while, God wants to give us himself. Pastor Nick used to say, why settle for a few trinkets when God wants to give you himself? And it's true. He wants us to draw near to him because if we do, what's going to happen? He's going to draw near to us, right? That's what scripture says. And when we're right with God, we're automatically more right with one another. I've, I've often illustrated it as the spokes on a wagon wheel. The closer we are to the center, to God, the closer we are to one another. Are you with me? But I'm not just talking about fasting here. Think about it. When we gather together like this on Sunday morning, what's the point? Is it so we can check this off our list? There, I took care of my worship obligation for the week. Is it just to hear somebody get up here and talk? I mean, granted, we could learn some good things. Sometimes we learn something new. That's exciting. That's fun. Is it just to come and sing some songs together? That, that can be a good emotional experience that that's not a bad thing so so we're learning we're having fun good time is that what this is all about see if we see this time together as an end in itself we're missing it if it doesn't deepen and strengthen our relationship with god and with one another we're missing the point let me change the context a little bit here for you why do you go to a home group gathering is it because it you, you, you think you should do it? Is it because it's, it's something you, you believe God wants you to do? And, and don't misunderstand going because, doing that because you think you should or because it's what God wants you to do. Those are not horrible motivations, all right? But I don't think it's the highest motivation. What if instead we did it because we truly want to grow in our relationship with God and with one another? 
Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, it says this, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So why, at least according to this passage, should we gather together to encourage one another, to stir one another up to to love and good works, right? Now, that's not the only reason to gather together, okay? But that is what this passage says. And, and, And think about it this way. When someone encourages you, when they stir you up to love and good works, does that, would that cause you to resent them or would it cause you to grow in love toward them? You with me? See, when we have the proper motivation, when we gather together intentionally to encourage one another, then it's going to strengthen our relationships. Attending a home group or even, even coming in here on Sunday morning, this is not an end in itself, no more than the rituals were that God gave to the Israelites back in the day. Now, before I go too far, I want to back up just a little bit and come at this from a, a different angle because I know that there are many, many congregations, many pastors who emphasize the gospel in everything they do, especially in their congregational settings. They want to make sure that their people understand there is nothing that they can do on their own to attain eternity with God. Jesus did it all. He already paid the price. He died and rose so that we can spend eternity with the Father. And I'm not by any means suggesting that that is a wrong idea. As a matter of fact, I think that's a really, really good idea. It's really important for us to understand. We emphasize the gospel here, and we should. But see, some people tend to see the gospel as an end. It's the entirety of all that they do and all that happens. But think about it. Why did the Father send Jesus? It was to buy us back into right relationship with him. So Jesus' death and resurrection are not the end, but the means. They're a sign pointing toward him. Oh, it's a lot more than a sign. All right, I get that. It's the means, but it's still a sign that says this way to God. And I'm being really strong about this on purpose because I think it's a big deal. Like I said, I've seen a lot of pastors who, who so emphasize the gospel that it becomes the entire thing, the whole enchilada. It's the primary purpose, the primary reason for everything, their whole focus, when in fact the whole point of the gospel is for us to have relationship with the Father. And don't hear me saying something I'm not saying. I, I, I think the gospel should be emphasized, absolutely. But never to the exclusion of the relationship. So God gave these rituals, these disciplines, these actions, these activities, whatever you want to call them, so that we can grow in our relationship with him. So I'm going to talk about um, those this morning and next week. We talked about uh, fasting. We talked about gathering, gathering together just for the sake of time. I'm going to do one more this morning. We talked about reading the Bible. And I want to start this one off by saying that this can be a little tricky because if the Bible really is the word of God, like it says it is, and if Jesus is the word made flesh, as scripture says that he is, then we dare not treat Scripture as just another ritual way to interact with God. All right, you with me? It's clearly more than that. But at the same time, I'll say this. My wife could send me 100 emails every single day 
And that wouldn't be the same as us going for a walk and having a conversation. You following what I'm saying? There's a qualitative difference. So I would say that the point of the Bible, of reading the Bible, is not merely to gain knowledge. Now, it's not wrong to gain knowledge from reading Scripture. In fact, I think it's a really good idea. But it's not the primary reason for the Bible. Just like the other things that we talked about, internalizing the Word of God, reading, studying, it's all about our relationship with Him. It has to be. The point of reading the Bible is to learn to interact with God. And again, don't misunderstand. It's tremendously important for us to, to hide the word in our hearts, to more and more know the written word. It's a, it's a lamp for your feet. It's a light for your path, totally. But there's more. Reading, studying, knowing God's word helps you to know him. You learn more of his character, more of what he's like. And with those things comes, comes an increasing recognition of his voice. Can I say it that way? So when he speaks to you, in the biblical text directly or outside of the biblical text, you know his voice more clearly. In other words, relationship. Let me, let me hit this from a different angle to help you understand. Sometimes if Barb and I aren't together, I'll call her. And if she is with our daughter, sometimes Amy will grab her mom's phone and she'll answer and she'll say, hi, honey. She's trying to fool me. Now, I usually know within maximum a sentence or two that I know that it's not my wife. So how can I tell that it's not my wife? Well, after decades of relationship, I know my wife's voice. I know the, the cadence, the, the timbre, the, the, the multitude of little things in her voice that most people would never even notice. See, most people would be fooled by Amy because she can sound remarkably like her mom. But she generally does not fool me because I know my wife's voice. It's all about relationship. And that's the point of reading the Bible. You'll learn his voice. Now, you'll, you'll learn other things. You'll learn his precepts. You'll learn right from wrong. You'll learn how to live as his child. You'll learn what he's like, what he's not like. You'll learn how much he loves you. You know, on and on and on. All of these incredible things that we will learn from Scripture. And we should learn from Scripture. But the most important one is the relationship with him. That's really what he's after. So let me ask you, when you read the Bible, are you expecting to encounter or hear from God? Or is it just a rote reading to you? Do you read to develop your relationship? Or do you read because it's the right thing to do? And don't skim over those questions too quickly because they're important. Jesus brought heaven and earth together but he did it by constantly being in relationship with his father and honestly from the way that I read scripture you and I can do the same but we'll only do it fully if we're intentionally cultivating our relationship with our heavenly father next week we're going to talk about things like prayer and sabbath and communion and more but for right now I'm just going to ask you to quiet your heart before God and consider what he might be speaking to you in what you just heard and how he would have you respond. Would you do that just for a moment?
Father, I know that too often I do things just to check them off my list, get them done. Lord, forgive me. We ask that we here gathered would be more intent on you, on our relationship with you. Not just wanting to accomplish some nice things, but Lord, to really know you. But would you draw our hearts to yourself through these various disciplines when we gather together like this, when we read your word, when we fast, uh, all of those things. Lord, would you, in your mercy, cause us to see you more, cause us to hear you better, cause us to know you more, that that relationship might be the way that you want it to be strengthening for us, fulfilling for us. But we can't do that on our own, but we're asking you to more and more draw our hearts to yourself. Amen.